Size doesn't necessarily matter though. It could be just that giving space to someone who's having a difficult day and listening to them. And right now during the pandemic, every single person you are near and in contact with is, is struggling in some way right now. I mean, there's just no doubt in my mind that people need to be able to have somebody who can really actively listen to them. And that can be a big kindness. So size, there's often a ripple effect. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Emotional Optimism Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to an author named Linda Cohen, who has written many books, most recently a book titled The Kindness Economy. We had a really, really great conversation about kindness, intentionality, impact, why does kindness sometimes get a bad rap or is called soft, a soft skill? And we really spent a lot of time on what is the ROI of kindness. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed speaking with Linda. She was really great. And um, have a wonderful day wherever you are. And if you have a minute in your day to get out your phone and text someone a little nugget of kindness, please do. Thank you so much. Linda, it's so great to have you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. No, Claude, I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yes, of course. I really want to, I want to talk about you, your origin story, and of course your book, The Economy of Kindness. I have so many questions that I think will be affirming for me as someone that gets asked a lot about kindness. So, uh, so away we go. Um, the first thing I want to ask is why do you care about kindness? I feel like I was drawn to this, to be completely honest. I'm not sure I walked around previous to kind of falling into this work about a decade ago thinking about this, um, but it has absolutely become my mantra. And I believe when we are living our lives, um, I, sign my, I sign my emails in kindness. So when we are living our lives sort of with that as our intention, we, uh, you know, we have to stay true to ourselves. And I think when you don't behave with kindness, you, um, you make an apology, you say, I'm sorry, you try to make up for it, you try to be better the next time. So I guess for me, that's where I want to live, you know, in this world, we have one choice, we have one life. Uh, that's the way I, I feel like I want to be. And I'm not all, oh my gosh, I'm not perfect. My kids will tell you that too. In their <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I always say I, uh, I mess it up and I don't hit a thousand at all, at right. all, at all. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your origin story. Where are you from? What did you, you know, what did you want to be when you were five or eight years old, when you grew up? I wanted to be a flight attendant when I was five and grew up. And I really thought that sounded like the coolest job. I don't even remember the first time I flew, but I just always thought those men and women, and it was probably more women in those days, just looked so cool. Um, I have gone on to waitressing. Um, and so I guess that is a piece of what you do in the air. But um, so how I fell really into this work, um, well, I, I, and to answer your question, where am I from? I'm from New England. I grew up both in uh, Ludlow, Vermont, small uh, skiing town 
down with Okemo and um, outside of the Boston area in Sudbury, Mass. My parents were divorced. And so I spent half of my childhood in each of those places. Um, and I feel like I got a lot from both of those. I uh, left the coop from Vermont. I graduated high school and left the coop and never wanted to go back to the small town life um, and moved to Portland, Oregon after going to school in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, popped around from coast to coast. I've been out in Portland now for about 25 years. Um, <laughs> and uh, my dad was living uh, in 2006 in Burlington, Vermont, and he called me and he had just been diagnosed with lung cancer and he was told it was terminal. And when I got that phone call from my dad, I was 38. I was married and had two kids at that time. But I knew that our relationship was kind of stuck. Like I was still a child and we still had that parent 16 year old relationship. And I didn't want him to go with that being the last thing we had. So I got on a plane the next week and flew to Vermont and we started some healing. My dad was a therapist um, and he was open to the conversation of us doing some healing. And so the last eight months of his life were really this unexpected Oof. gift. And I don't know if any of your listeners on the West Coast have relatives on the East Coast, but it's often hard to find time to call an older relative, especially if you wait till maybe after the kids are in bed or you finish dinner or whatever, because then you look at the clock and it's too late. And that's kind of how it had been in many of the years with my dad. But those eight months, every single day, practically, I found time to call him. And I remember he said, like, why did we wait mm. till I was dying to mend Oof. our relationship? So um, when he passed away, December 1st, 2006, which was my son's sixth birthday, actually, <laughs> um, we had found this really beautiful place of, of, um, of peace, a new place for us. And I, I loved my dad. He was a huge personality and people adored my father. And I, there was a piece of me that was so sad that so many of our years had been tumultuous. Um, so after about five weeks, I woke up in the middle of the night with this idea to do something to honor him. And that was a thousand mitzvahs. It was my thousand mitzvah idea, uh, which if you have listeners who aren't Jewish, a mitzvah is actually a good deed, an act of kindness. Um, in Judaism, there are commandments and we are told to do these. Um, and I decided I wanted to do, you know, acts of loving kindness, these thousand mitzvahs in his memory. And my husband said, well, great, but how are you going to know you've hit that? It's kind of a random number, you know, where are you going to track it? So I started a blog in January of 2007 and started my thousand mitzvah project, which lasted two and a half years. I thought I could do it in a year or less type A, you know, personality, <laughs> three, three acts of kindness, three mitzvahs a day. Um, but really the project transformed how I walked through my life <laughs> and how I looked for opportunities. And they were never, you know, they were all organic. They were never pre-planned. It was just like what comes up in a given day. Oh, I can, you know, pick up garbage on the way to the park. I can, you know, um, help someone in the grocery store. I can do something for another human being that I am noticing because my phone is down and I'm looking around at another person in the world, you know? So those were the kinds of mitzvahs and uh, the project just changed me and uh, um, ended up writing a book. My first book, 1000 Mitzvahs, recorded a TED talk in 2012 after the book came out, started speaking about this idea of mitzvahs. And then about five years ago, really turned my kindness mitzvah work in the world into how does this affect business? businesses and organizations and how can leaders learn from this idea of kindness in the workplace. And that's where I do my work now. And I absolutely know that leaders like Gary, who are talking about kindness and really promoting that in their organizations, those organizations are thriving because people feel like they are humans, um, not just a number, not just doing a job, not just punching a clock. Yeah. Wow. So much in there. Thank you for sharing the journey and, and, um, 
and the gift that I think you and your father gave one another and, and uh, that you carried forth. It's just beautiful. The it's so interesting, you know, kindness. Um, uh, you said in the beginning, you know, intentionality is everything and nothing has to be such a grand gesture. Mm-hmm. Picking up trash, opening the door, saying thank you, writing a quick text or note to someone. It takes no time. Right. It, it costs us nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it pays us everything. Right. Um, and it's interesting because I want to get I want to I want to talk about kindness in the workplace and as a as a business strategy, quite frankly, because I think that is the um the two questions I want to ask you is why do you think kindness sometimes gets a bad rap? And I say that in quotations, whatever that means, but you know, it's so seen as a soft skill. And, and we all are talking about there is no, there are no soft skills. These are all, all very necessary life skills, hard skills. But why do you think kindness sometimes is seen as like, well, let's just put that in the corner over there? I think um, I think that a lot of times people called it a weakness. They thought a leader who had that was too vulnerable, too um, unguarded, and wasn't able to have the authority that they would need to run the organization. And I actually think the opposite is true. I think that when you have, and I saw this so much during the pandemic, you know, I, I remember, and it's in my book, there was a leader in England running a healthcare organization. We were six months into the pandemic and she posted something on LinkedIn that said, you know, she was on a CEO call that day and she was crying because it was just the pressure of trying to run an organization during a pandemic and be there for her people was just overwhelming. And many of the other CEOs were also sharing their hardships. And she posted this on LinkedIn, very vulnerable, very real about how she's trying to be this CEO for her people. And the comments were so supportive. They were, you know, they were really supporting her authenticity and trying to do the right thing in a situation that was really difficult that no, none of us had walked through before. And um, and I just loved that her kindness and her generosity and her authenticity was really seen as something important and valuable. Later on, I saw another post from her. Her staff had given her a button that said, kind but badass you know, <laughs> at the holidays. And I just love that. So I think as we are shifting and thinking, and I think this conversation is becoming so much more relevant and people are talking about hiring for soft skills and training for the hard skills because you can't necessarily teach an employee to be a kind, giving, caring, empathetic person, but you sure could teach them some other skills you might need to, you know, work on spreadsheets or do whatever it is um, that their hard skills might be that maybe they aren't as as talented as. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think you're right in terms of like, oh, if you if you're a CEO, you need to uh, command a room and have authority, and that must mean you're cutthroat and. Um, you know, you go for blood and all of that stuff. And and to your point, and certainly my CEO is the opposite of that, which is he's showing the world that you can be extremely successful by being kind. And that is the strength. That is the superpower for sure. So what do you think holds people back from being kind? We, you know, we've just talked about, okay, you might not be seen as an authority figure or a leader, but in the workplace, just in every day, you know, we're all on Zoom right now, but what do you think prevents that, whether or not that's psychologically or just someone's own uh, uh, triggers 
So I can answer that because the last year during the pandemic, I had actually a group of firefighters that I was going to be speaking to in November of 2020. I'd never spoken to firefighters before. And I was kind of terrified because it was going to be on Zoom. And the chief told me, you know, these these mostly men, it was like 95 percent men. Most of them are probably not going to engage much with you. I know you tend to be interactive. So I did something with a QR code and I tried to engage them and ask the question, what holds you back from being kind? And it was so successful with that group that I have ended up doing it in about 15 other groups throughout the year. And so here's the number one answer. People say that holds them back from being kind. Time. They feel overwhelmed, exhausted, and stressed. Those were like the top three answers, three or four answers that they gave. I thought it might be, and, and on the list also was, you know, um, my don't have a good orientation. My boss um, doesn't appreciate me or... Um, I, you know, there's politics, I'm afraid, there's anxiety. There were a lot of other answers that I found kind of interesting, but stress and time and overwhelm during the pandemic were the three three or four reasons why people said they were not kind, which to me is so interesting because there is research. And the coolest thing about being in this space now for more than a decade is that the research has continued to grow. These things that I felt sort of viscerally from my own project have grown to tell us that you know, if you engage in acts of kindness intentionally, you will actually uh, reduce your feelings of stress and anxiety because you are now othering, you are giving to another person. And there's a giver's high that comes from that, right? There's this feeling of, even if you just write a thank you note. Um, and I'll, um, you know, I just wanted to say this earlier when you said something about the size of the kindness. My three lessons that I always share with groups is, Number one, the size of the kindness doesn't matter, right? You think it has to be something grand, heroic, 800 flowers to all of your employees, which I loved that story you shared on a previous podcast. Um, size doesn't necessarily matter, though. It could be just that giving space to someone who's having a difficult day and listening to them. And right now during the pandemic, every single person you are near and in contact with is, is struggling in some way right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no doubt in my mind that people need to be able to have somebody who can really actively listen to them. And that can be a big kindness. So size, there's often a ripple effect. You know, I have seen it. I have heard it when I talk to audiences, a manager who did something for an employee 20 years ago, that employee employee in my audience will tell me that story when I ask about receiving a kindness. So it's so impactful. You just have no idea. So ripple effect and, and then giving and receiving kindness. I mean, a lot of people feel like giving is easier than receiving kindness. Mm -hmm. But any of us who've been in a situation where we've had loss, medical issues, health issues, anything where you have had to be vulnerable and allow other people to give to you will often talk about that feeling of discomfort in receiving kindness, but also in the joys that come when you know that there are other people out there who care about you. So those are often my lessons that I feel like I have to talk about because they're small, but they are impactful when you think about them. They're super and it's very important to share those because I think someone can easily grasp the simplicity in it. And I understand it's simplicity in the philosophy, but when you really think a thank you, holding space, again, back to, it doesn't cost us anything and it feels so good to give. And I believe I, I heard somewhere that um, uh, when we give someone our attention, it unlocks serotonin. Mm -hmm. in our brains. And when we give someone generosity, which I think goes beyond just attention, it, it unlocks oxytocin, which is the, you know, the love hormone and the, the feeling of bonding. 
And when you talk about the ripple effect, the way I kind of, um, I wrote down the halo effect when you, when you said that, that there is such a wonderful knock-on effect. You see it in office spaces, you know, you see it, it's like laughter. Someone's mm-hmm. laughing, you immediately start laughing and yawning as well. And you can still see it and feel it on Zoom. It's a little bit different because mm-hmm. we're, we're in our own little boxes, but I think we just need to, that's why it's that much more important to lean in that much more, like a couple more millimeters and go the extra distance to say, thank you. How are you? How was your weekend? Yep. Starting starting conversations like that are impactful. I had an experience. I lost my family dog, 14 years old in December. Mm. I had to do a a present. I had to do two keynotes that week, a couple of days later. And I was not sure I was going to be able to hold it together. I talk a lot about grief. I was feeling so incredibly raw. This was my sweet, sweet baby dog. And um, I get on the Zoom and the woman who had been planning with me, I'm already getting like a little... I choked up just telling you the story, but um, I get on the Zoom and the woman says, oh my gosh, I love your talk. I think all she wrote was, I love your talk in the chat as we were waiting to start the program. And she had no idea. I hadn't mentioned anything about my dog. I knew I just needed to do my program. I did eventually mention it. But in that moment, receiving that little message of kindness was what I needed to be Uh able to stand up a little taller. And when I talk to schools and um, children and adults too, I always talk about giving a compliment as sort of the simplest thing that someone could do. That's an act of kindness, really seeing another person. And I know for me, and probably for you, when you receive a kindness, a a compliment, you just, you just stand a little taller. It's often, you know, if it's a genuine compliment, you, you feel like you've been noticed in the world, you know? Yeah. And I think that goes to this idea of the unexpected. Yeah. It's unexpected. I mean, I, I, you know, you weren't expecting someone to comment on your top or comment on at probably on anything. Right. And kindness and acts of kindness are unexpected too. And I think that there's that wonderful, um, you know, act of serendipity. Right. That you talked about surprise. Have you talked about surprise and delight yes. in terms of giving kindness, yes. especially in the workplace? We do surprise you know, and delight a lot. I love that idea. Just, you know, yeah. something unexpected for your staff. And well, that was the flowers that day <laughs> yes. where everyone, everyone uh, arrived to their desks, no matter the office or location with uh, a small little bouquet and a handwritten note. Unbelievable. From myself and Gary, which was amazing. And surprise and delight is so easy. It's actually, if you're listening to what someone's saying, you can catch that, oh, okay, they've mentioned this one baseball team 80 times in the last three years. Maybe I can, I can't get them tickets, but maybe I can get them, you know, a, a jersey or something. Right. Right. Send it off to them. Right. I, it's my favorite thing to do. Right. Awesome. No, you're giving me chills in the back of my, yeah. my neck because I, there's such uh, incredible opportunities to do that when we are tuned into other human beings mm-hmm. and being either the giver or the recipient of that is so amazing. You yeah, know? Um, it is. I think that's, it's what makes life just that much, much richer, actually. Um, the, the question is the, you really like the Grand Prix of questions is the question I get all the time, which I actually think you've already answered. But let me be clear. When someone says to you, well, what is the ROI of kindness? Uh, they say it, you know, after you did a keynote or they say it before they want to book you. What do you share with them? I think if you have created a culture where people feel valued, 
feel respected, feel seen, you will have created a culture that people want to work in. Um, you know, we have a lot of choices now and we, with the great resignation, people are leaving jobs. Um, you never want your people to leave the job because of culture. If they leave the job because something has come up with their family or something different, that's one thing. But if they leave the job because the culture stinks, then you have some control over what you can do about that. So I have learned about so many organizations over the years that have a culture that people really want to be part of because they feel like there is something bigger that they, and it's not just, you know, nonprofits. I mean, a lot of times people go into nonprofit work because there's sort of a mission focus, but you could be working for an organization where you feel like you can be your best self, thrive in your best way. Um, so I talk about, re, you know, recruitment and retention um, as really important reasons that your ROI could be affected by your culture of kindness. Um, but I also talk about reputation. Um, you know, your organization could um, could have an experience, and I don't I don't think I want to mention any companies in particular, mm-hmm, but. Mm-hmm. My daughter shared a company when she was in college that she'd been using a lot. And there had been some turnover at the top leadership of that company because the CEO was seen as a totally macho, kind of not very kind of culture um, leader. And he was asked to step down. And um, she really switched her allegiance in terms of what she was willing to do with that company. She's a, you know, she's a 20-something. And, you know, if all 20-somethings, and I, I know I haven't mentioned the name of the company, but it could affect your bottom line, if a huge group of people on social media start sharing things about your company that affects the reputation. Now, this company ended up hiring a brand new CEO who knew that the culture needed some shifting. And he came in right away listening, actively listening to his organization and created a manifesto. And one of the lines in that you know manifesto was, we do the right thing, period, <laughs> because that was not what the previous leader had sort of established as the company had been growing. So I think it's important for a company to think about where, you know, when you replace an employee, that costs a lot of money. There's also morale that gets affected and other things within the organization. Um, so you want to make sure you're recruiting great people who have, uh, you know, who want to work for your company and some companies. So Zappos is the company I never had heard about. I just said, I wasn't going to mention companies, but anyway, <laughs> I mentioned them. Yeah. I was in Las Vegas and one of their employees was in my audience and asked me if I'd heard about them because their culture was such that people really wanted to work for them in Las Vegas. And mm-hmm. it was hard to get a job at that company. So, um, you know, you want to have that. I mean, that's yeah. like the benefit if you have a company with a great reputation that people want to come work for you. Yeah. And then you have ambassadors and cult, what I call culture champions internally totally. right there. Um, and I think it was, I, I don't know if it was Jeff Bezos or Seth Godin who said, um, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Totally. And yes. it, it is very, very true. And you want that to be like, yeah, I love working here. And oh, those seven years I just spent at Company X or VaynerMedia, best seven years of my life. And right. I'm now a CMO of blah, blah, blah. Right, right, so right. I really, I'm so glad we talked about the halo effect and, and the ripple effect because- yeah. I'll also tell you, you know, when I do my workshop, often I'll ask a company that people in the audience love going to as a customer. And I ended up learning about um, Les Schwab. It's a Pacific Northwest company that I had never learned about. It's an auto, it's a tire shop, but they have incredible customer service. And after I heard it about six times in an audience, I was like, I got to go check this place out because, you know, I didn't know much about it. I had an auto shop in my neighborhood and I was able to walk there. So I, I didn't end up going there. And they really did. It was, it was, 
top down from their leader who no longer is alive, Les Schwab, but he empowered his employees from the get-go in the 80s. He really empowered his team financially and um, how they could run their organization. And they grew like crazy and it ended up getting sold. He passed away and his family ended up selling the company for like a billion dollars. You know, <laughs> I don't know the exact number, but you know the company was so successful because of the philosophy. And people talked about it because they felt like the customer service they were receiving was so outstanding that everybody wanted to mention that as a company that felt like it had that culture of kindness within it. I love it. You mentioned that in the book I was reading, uh, <laughs> which is awesome. The um, uh, And going back to the manifesto of that company, you were also talking about a different company. We say doing the right thing is always the right thing. Mm. There's just no, there's a, so doing the right thing, period, doing the right thing is always, there's no question. And you know when it, you know when you're doing the right thing, just like you know when you're not. Right. And I, you know, we're only accountable to ourselves, which, by the way, is an enormous responsibility. But I, you know, I do think that we are seeing change happening, transformation happening. You're part of that change, obviously, the work that you're doing and getting out there and talking to people and you know, reading and writing your books and just sharing that. No act is too small. Right. Yeah. And I do love talking to CEOs now who are saying that they really have shifted, that they are hiring for soft skills and um, making sure that people that they bring into their organizations um, are have those. And uh, that's important to them that they bring somebody in that's the right fit for their culture. Yeah. I love it. I want to thank you so much for being here. This is awesome. I could talk to you all day about this. I can't believe we're done already. That was so much fun. Thank it you was, so much. Fun. It was so it was much. If, if you could leave the listeners with one nugget right now, which you already have, but what what is an action they can take right now? I would say when you are out and about, if you can put your phone down and look around, um, I, I'm just going to tell you this quick little tidbit. When I was doing the mitzvah project, I was at a Trader Joe's grocery shopping, our family of four, gigantic basket. And um, a gentleman behind me had a half a gallon of eggs and a carton of um, milk. And I said, I said that wrong, but anyway, eggs and milk. And I said, do you want to go in front of me? He went in front of me, thanked me and told the cashier that was the nicest thing that anyone has done for me today. Ooh. And in my head, I thought, what kind of a day was he having if that gesture that any of us might do was the nicest Jeez. thing? So today, when you are out and about, know that the person standing next to you could use that smile, that compliment, that concern. Even the person at the grocery store, at the cash register, anywhere, that real serious interaction, intentional interaction of another human being standing across from you could make a difference today. I thank you so much for that. And I, I have to mention my Nana, who, uh, who I talk about a lot, who died five years ago at 101. And any Trader Joe's we were in, anytime I was with her and she would um, and be handing her ATM or her, uh, her cash to the, to the cashier, and she would look up at the name tag and she would say, Linda, and you'd look down and you'd say, yes. And she'd say, would you do me a favor and have a peaceful day? And that was that. Oh, and perfect. To, your, to your point, it, it goes so far. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your mitzvahs with us. Thank and we uh, look forward to chatting again. Definitely. Hey, everybody. 
if you want to start a podcast or you have a podcast that you want to get up and running, please, please reach out to my team at onairbrands.com. That's onairbrands.com. They're the best.